Brad Hennick. Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, uh, we're going to be in several places in Scripture today. I started in Habakkuk 3. As you know, we're going to finish Habakkuk next week. We'll be in Haggai. And when you start talking about pain and problems and people and suffering, you know, you kind of get led into a whole lot of things. So we're going to we're going to start in Habakkuk, but we're really going to be just talking about three or four Bible characters. Habakkuk's the first one. We're going to go to Job, so you might want to keep your thumb in Job 42. We're going to be spending some time with Asaph in Psalm 73. And then at the very end, we'll, we'll camp just briefly in Isaiah, Isaiah 6. You know, you, you, the world is filled with um, people who you would not want to be your neighbors. You know, you look at the news. Have you ever noticed that? The, 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 you know, the, yeah, there, there, there's, all kinds, there's all kinds of bad news. You don't have to uh, look too far in the newspaper to figure that out. The key question we ask ourselves is why? Why does a good God who's all-powerful allow the existence of evil, and why does he have them live next to me? <laughs> or why, even more so, why are they my relatives? Right, just a thought. Uh, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? You know, we've been asking these questions from time immemorial. And as uh, Pastor pointed out this morning, as we see our values uh, begin to deteriorate or continue to deteriorate, we ask that perennial question. We want to look at three people's lives today. We're going to take a look at how Habakkuk complains to God, Job criticizes God, and Asaph begins to covet things. And here's the key idea we're going to focus on today. The key idea is this. God's perspective comes in God's presence. God's perspective comes in God's presence. Here's the one you're not going to like. You don't need less problems. You need more presence. You don't need less problems, you need more presence. We're going to talk about that. Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk, as you know, in the first couple of chapters has been having a real problem with why God allows wickedness to apparently thrive in the nation of Judah. And he complains that God's not doing anything. God says, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Babylonians in, and they're going to take you into seven years of captivity. And then Habakkuk really has a problem. He says, look, how could you have people more wicked than us discipline us? That doesn't seem fair. So we spend some time in the first two chapters complaining about that, or the first chapter. In chapter number two, God explains to Habakkuk a bit about his plan. Habakkuk has a real, real hard time with it. But he goes through a process of transformation, and we're going to get to that here in a second. When you review Habakkuk 1, here's what he complains about. You probably have said this. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. God, I cry for help, and you do not hear. Right? I've been asking you, Lord, to do something about my problem. Either you don't hear or you don't care because nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. I'm still dealing with the same old stuff. If you look at Habakkuk 2, verse 13, he says, Why do you look with favor on the treacherous? God, if you were consistent, you would bless the good people and you would punish the bad people, right? Isn't that what you do with your children? You reward good behavior, you punish bad behavior. God, you're not a very good parent because you're tolerating bad behavior. As a matter of fact, you're bringing these wicked Babylonians in to discipline us. He says, God, the wicked are going to swallow up the righteous. These bad people are going to discipline us, and you're not doing anything about it. 
it's intriguing that if you look at every point of crisis in history, there's always people that say, why didn't God do something about 911? Why didn't God stop Saddam Hussein? Why didn't God stop Osama bin Laden? Why didn't God stop Hurricane Katrina? You know the question nobody asks? How come God doesn't stop me from doing my evil? None of us say that. We're saying, God, how come you don't stop so-and-so who does bad behavior? Very seldom do look in the mirror and they go, you know, God, how about if you stop my bad behavior? Whoa. Because if you look in the mirror, you say, well, if God's going to stop my bad behavior, maybe he's got to take me out. I'm not ready to leave yet. I got, you know, it's all those other people. So there's a little self-righteousness in our praying there at that point in time. Another character in Scripture that had really the most right, other than Jesus, to ask that why question is Job. Job's problem is suffering, which is the paradox is Job is suffering, and in chapter 1, God says Job is blameless. And you look and you say, God says Job's blameless, and yet he's suffering, and the suffering continues, and it doesn't end. You know, Job is one of those people, most, most of us would like to forget this book exists because no one names their kid Job. You know, that would not be a good omen for your children. I'm going to name my, now you might want to name them that when they're 35. Your name is Job, you know, life is continuing to give you a hard time. But Job, as you recall, suffered probably more than anybody other than our Lord. He lost all his wealth, all his children, all his health, lost his family, lost his friends, lost his wife to unbelief. Everything he had was gone. His circumstances are almost indescribably painful. He's probably got a form of elephantitis, which is a very, very itchy, oozy, leprous type of skin. He's sitting on the ash heap scraping himself because he's itching himself to death. And this is going on for not days, not weeks, but months. Have you ever noticed that if you have a problem for an afternoon, <laughs> if it's done by dinner, yeah, you can probably live with it. But what about if it goes beyond dinner, into the next day, into the next week, into the next month? And sometimes we deal with the same problems for years. Let me really encourage you. There are some problems in your life right now that you will deal with until you go to heaven. That's reality. See, we want God to take away the problem. And some of the problems that we have, God will take away. But did you know there are some problems in your life and my life God is not going to take away? Now, I don't know which ones there are. So keep praying, you know. You know, keep, 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 keep praying. But the, the point is, God knows what problems we need to keep. I said God knows what problems we need to keep. We're not even smart enough to be able to know when we should ask him to take them away. We ask God to take stuff out of our life because we think it's a problem. It may be the source of blessing that he is using. So we have to have, back to the key idea, you need God's perspective. Where do you get God's perspective? In God's presence. We're going to talk more about that as we go. So Job is struggling with this and he ultimately tells God, he demands that God give him his day in court. He wants justice. If you just write down Job 31, Job 31, 35, <clears throat> he says, he's complaining now, I would be too. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. God, 
you're not listening. Behold, here is my signature. This is a legal authorization on a formal court document, like a subpoena. He wants to subpoena God and force him into court. Because in court, Job is convinced he can get justice. So he says, I want to subpoena God. I want to call him into court on a legal operation. And we're going to have a hearing. Let the Almighty answer me. I'll, you owe me a hearing, God. And the indictment which my adversary has written, God, you're indicting me. You put it in writing. You put it in writing. I want you to write it down so I can see it. Verse 36. I would carry that indictment on my shoulder. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Here's what's interesting. Job now says, like a prince, I would approach God. God, I'm telling you, you got to listen to me. And we're going to go to court. You owe me a day in court. And I'm going to march right up to the bench like a prince. And I'm going to tell you what I think. You're not just. You are not just, God. So the first 37 chapters of Job, you get Job's life, Job problems, Job's suffering. Most of the first 37 chapters records a lot of human opinion about why Job is suffering. Remember, Job has three friends. If you have friends like Job's, you don't need enemies. They show up to comfort him, and for the first seven days, they do really, really well. They shut up and say nothing. That amazed me. You could be with someone who's suffering for seven days and say nothing. Do you know that's the best thing they did? That's the most comforting thing they did is to say nothing. I think sometimes when we're with, with friend, family and friends that are suffering, we want to fix the problem. We want to fix the pain. We want to ease their suffering, which is a good thing. And we think we can do it with words. I'm not saying words are, are not helpful. I'm saying fewer words are more helpful. What mostly you just need to do is be there. Just be there. Sometimes all I need is a hug. Sometimes all I need is I'm praying for you. I'm praying with you at that point. So his three friends... They, they're convinced that Job has sinned because his free th three friends assume that a good God would never allow a good person to suffer. That's the assumption. A good God would never allow a good person to suffer. Only the wicked suffer. Now, Job maintains his innocence, but he doesn't understand why he's suffering either. So most of the book of Job is his Job and his three friends in an argument, right? And they all have a very high opinion of their own opinion. Like most of us, we have a very high opinion of our own opinion. There's an old proverb that says, better to close your mouth and seem a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> that probably should be tattooed on Brad's forehead. Just probably should. Marin has saved my bacon in more times. It, 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 you know, there's many times no words are the best words. There's another proverb that says, when you're in a hole... Stop digging. <laughs> so these three friends are now in a major dialogue, and the dialogue is heating up, and they're getting hotter and hotter, and the hole's getting deeper and deeper. And the only person that doesn't talk in the first 37 chapters is God. It's all human opinion. Chapter 37 or 38, God starts to speak to Job out of a whirlwind. Now that's a lot of warm air. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that a, a hurricane or an earthquake will get your attention and remind you how little power you really have. 
God spoke to Elijah with a still small voice. He talked to Job out of a hurricane, which is, to me, would get Job's attention. You know, um, this last week we saw this horrific um, 7.8 Richter earthquake in, in Nepal. And within the first 24 hours, I saw uh, some GoPro footage of, uh, of the expeditions that were trying to hike Everest. And you see that avalanche, probably most of you saw that avalanche coming down. And I'm thinking to myself, here you are, you know, 17,000 feet of base camp, and there is thousands of tons of snow, and it's coming right at you. And there is nothing, and you know what they were doing? Diving into their tent. I, not, I would be doing the same thing, but when you think about it, you go, if that's the most shelter you have, you're in deep doo-doo, right? It's not, it's not good, right? But you're, it, it, when you're on the bottom end of an avalanche, you don't have to persuade me that you're in charge. I know you're not, right? I know you're not. So this conversation between God and Job is not a little tea party, polite conversation, chit-chat. This is, um, Job has demanded his day in court, and God's going to give them to him. However, Job thinks when he gets to God, he's going to do all the talking. Job doesn't do any talking. Chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41 are some of the most humbling chapters. I highly recommend that you read those chapters at least once a year because in them, God becomes the courtroom interrogator. And in chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41, God asks Job 70 questions. There is no place in Scripture where there's this many questions that God asks. And if you've been in this class for a while, you know that we've said when God asks you questions, He is not seeking information. He knows the information. He's not seeking information. God's questions were designed to demonstrate to Job that if Job was really qualified to judge God, then Job should be able at least to do everything God did like create and control the universe. So he asked Job a series of questions. Where were you when I made this? Can you control blah, blah, blah? You know, at the end he says, Job, if you can't even control the crocodile, what qualifies you to tell me how to run my universe? Job 40, verse 8 is really the crux of the issue between God and Job with suffering. Job 40, verse 8. God asked Job, Will you really annul my judgment Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? See, here's the problem. Job is so convinced that, that he must be right. And if Job is right, God must be wrong. Correct? Have you ever had a disagreement with God? Have you ever been honest enough to own it and say, God and I disagree about this? None of you have put your hands up. I got one honest person over here, okay? Come on, we've had disagreements with God. Our challenge is, Job's challenge was not his conversation with God. Job's challenge is, God had to be wrong in order for him to be right. That's a very, very dangerous place to be because if you and God disagree, what can we assume? He's right, right? My father used to say, my father said, there's one thing, Brad, I may not always be right. But as head of this family, I'm never wrong. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, wow. Dad said, I may not always be right, but as head of this family, I am never wrong. And my father was not an arrogant man, but 
I'll never forget that. He told me, he said, that the way to exercise headship over a family is let everybody know that you are the head of the family and you have the authority to exercise it and then exercise it very seldom. <laughs> Only when it's really important, right? That was good counsel. So here's Job's problem. And you and I have this problem in spades. Job, Habakkuk, Asaph, you and I assume, assume that everything that happens in God's universe must be explained to us. In other words, God owes me an explanation of everything that he is doing and why he is doing it. Right? That's our assumption. If you're doing it, God, you owe me an explanation. Because God is not trustworthy, so therefore I must completely understand and approve all his plans for his universe, right? That's like your three-year-old child or grandchild saying to you, mom and dad, grandpa, grandma, you got to explain to me what you're doing, why you're doing, how you're doing, when you're doing, etc., so I can understand and approve any action you take. That's what we do to God. We say, God, you owe me an explanation. And you're saying, look, my three-year-old couldn't comprehend the explanation I give him about why we're doing what we're doing in our family. So we go to God and say, God, you owe me an explanation. And he says, you know, you're not even three, <laughs> right? I mean, I could explain it to you. You wouldn't understand it. Clearly not. I've met people that have said, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to ask God is, why did you allow blah, 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 blah? When you get to heaven, you will not be asking any questions. <laughs> any questions. You won't want to. We'll talk about that. Jump over to Psalm 73, if you would. Psalm 73, one of the great psalms on why bad people prosper and good people suffer. Asaph is really wrestling with this. It's his autobiography, Psalm 73, and he tells us in verse 2, he says, You know, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. He's saying my spiritual walk with the Lord was really on the line. I was about ready to go over the cliff, man. I, I was on slippery footing. Why? Verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph is saying, look, I'm evaluating life on what I see with my own two eyes. I'm evaluating life based on earthly evidence. And you know something? It seems to me that the wicked do really well on planet Earth. Right? The wicked do really well on planet Earth. And Asaph is struggling with envy. What they've got, I want. Well, what did the wicked have? Go to verse 4. Psalm 73, 4. He's talking about these wicked people, and he says, There are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Yeah, I know, I know. They die peacefully. They have no fear of eternal judgment. They're convinced that God and them are good, even though they may not be. He says their body's fat. Now listen, folks, in that culture, food had value, enormous value. There was no supermarkets with 63,000 items you could buy, most of which were processed, were all the nutrition's out of it. But at any rate, you ate a very few food items. Most of us, if we jump back to Bible times, the diet would be so boring because it'd be so similar. A little grain, a little dairy... You ate meat only on feast days, right? I mean, you know, there was no Chipotle. I'm sorry. 
most people struggled with hunger. And these wicked people were fat. They didn't struggle with hunger. They had all the food they could eat. He was jealous of that. Verse 5. This is classic. Asaph's complaining to God. And he says, God, those wicked people, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Have you ever met people that seem to live a charmed life? Everything seems to go well. And you know what makes you want to slap them is when all they do is brag on their kids and grandkids. My grandkid got a full boat scholarship into Stanford, man. He's got a 4.8 place football, which is great. Okay, no problem. But that's all you talk about, right? It, you look and you go, you know, when you sleep, don't you drool? I mean, does your hair go to one side when you know? I mean, do you ever have... That, don't go there, don't go there. It, it appears that they don't have any money problems, no family problems, no health problems like the rest of us. They're Teflon. And you also know they're liars, right? Because everybody's got stuff. Everybody's got stuff. Verse 12, Asaph goes, you know, these wicked, they're always at ease because their wealth increases. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? If you have enough wealth, you can live a life of ease, right? Is that our culture's goal? Is that our culture's God? These people, Asaph says, you know, God, every time I look at them, they're lounging by the pool. They're on the deck of their yacht. They're strolling on the beach. They're either going on vacation, just came back from vacation. You know, easy life. They get to tip throw through the tulips and the righteous, we get to tip throw through the minefields. What's wrong with this picture, God? These people are bad and they get the tulips, and we're trying to do the right thing, and we get the minefields. Doesn't add up. Doesn't seem to add up. He starts doing the equation, and in verse 13 he says, You know, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He says, You know, I'm trying to live a good life. My life is struggle. My life is suffering. God disciplines me. The wicked seem to have the health and the wealth and easy street, and God doesn't seem to even notice. He sure doesn't discipline them. Bad equation. The righteous get paid with a coin of affliction, and the paycheck of the wicked is sun, fun, stay, play. <laughs> to coin a phrase for some of you who've been here for a while, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's us, man. So, you know what he concludes? He said, it doesn't pay to serve God. Why would I serve God? I don't get anything in this life but troubles. He'd rather be the wealthy wicked than the suffering servant. Let me give you another historical example you can, in Genesis. Remember Joseph? Remember Joseph? Joseph's an interesting guy. He's the youngest, uh, second youngest of 12 brothers. He's his father's favorite. His 10 older brothers hate his guts just like your family, right? Rivalry and everything else. And they hate him so much they sell him into slavery. Now some of you would do that to your teenage brother or sister. I know, right? They sell him into slavery because dad is playing favorites. Can you imagine how Joseph would feel at 17 years old when they sell him into slavery to Egypt, which is several hundred miles away? Never going to see family again. I can only imagine the hurt and anger he must have felt. So he goes to work for Potiphar, who's the, you know, the, in essence, the head of the secret service that protects the Pharaoh. 
He does the right thing. Potiphar recognizes his genius, says, you're over my entire house. Potiphar's wife tries to put the make on him. And he says no. She accuses him of rape and Potiphar throws him in prison. He gets thrown in prison for not sleeping with the boss's wife. Right? For doing the right thing. Gets thrown in prison. How would you feel? You know, I'm sure he said, God, you got to get me out of prison. Right? I'm here unjustly. I'm in prison unjustly. You got to get me out of prison. So why did God have him in prison? He had a divine appointment coming up in two years with the butcher, the, the baker and the wine taster, cupbearer, right? Because Pharaoh was going to have a dream. And Pharaoh's dream had to be interpreted, but God had to introduce him to the cupbearer so the cupbearer could introduce him to Pharaoh so he could interpret the dream. He had a divine appointment in prison. That was God's plan for two years. He became prime minister at 30, which means he suffered as a slave and in prison for 13 years. Now, some of you are dealing with stuff I know you've had for 13 years. Some longer. We don't understand the purpose any more than Joseph did. See, we look at these stories and we go, well, of course, I mean, if you add it all up, I mean, he put it up for 13 years, but look what happened to him, man. He became prime minister. Not a bad deal, right? On balance. Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, what you're going through now, are not even worthy to be mentioned in the same breath with what's to come. What's, what's coming? Heaven is coming. I promise you, when you get to heaven, you will not go back and say, You know, God, in 2015, you did not treat me very fair. I got a beef with you about that. You will get to heaven and you will go, wow, 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 wow. You won't even be thinking about this. I assure you that Joseph probably didn't think too much about prison after he became prime minister, but there was purpose in prison. There's purpose in your pain. God has purpose. I don't say I understand it. I don't say you understand it, but we have a trustworthy God. Genesis 50 tells us that Joseph understood his suffering from God's point of view. Genesis 50, 20, he said to his brothers, he said, you meant it for evil. When you sold me into slavery, you meant to get rid of me. But God took that and meant it for good to save much people alive. So we had that perspective. Go back to Psalm 73. Asaph is struggling with self-centeredness and self-pity. Psalm 73, 21, he said, Lord, I was bitter my heart was pierced. You know, I was senseless and ignorant. When's the last time your teenager admitted to that? <laughs> I was senseless and ignorant. Some of us probably should look in the mirror from time to go, and yeah, that's me, that's me. I was like a beast before you. <clears throat> you know, self-centeredness is um, very, very, very useless. Have you ever noticed that looking into the mirror very seldom tells you anything new or helpful? Seldom. We tend to think and view things only in terms of how they will affect us. Yes? It's the nature of self-centeredness. There's a sign in the Tennessee Zoo that says, please be safe. Do not sit, climb, or lean on the zoo fences. 
If you fall, the animals could eat you. And that would make them very sick. <laughs> From whose perspective are we viewing? Very good, Rob. Blessings. You know, what Asaph needs right now is not a self-centered perspective. He needs God's perspective. He doesn't need to look around. He needs to look up. He doesn't need to stop comparing himself to others. He needs to look to God. So all three of these characters need God's perspective. And how do you get God's perspective? You need a meeting with God himself. Asaph says in Psalm 73, 16, when I ponder to understand this, he's looking at the, the wickedness and their prosperity and the suffering of the righteous. He says it was troublesome in my sight. He says, I can't make sense of this thing. It's keep me up at night. It's bothering me. I can't figure out how come a good God would let wicked people prosper and how come good people are going to struggle. And he says it was really troublesome until, underline verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived the end of the wicked. What's going to happen at their end? You know, he comes into God's house to worship and he sees life from God's point of view. Not just life here on earth, but eternal life after we leave earth. You know, we've said this, I don't know how many times. You only get a few decades here, right? A few, right? And most of them we can't remember anyway. I mean, you know, what were you doing at 15? Getting in trouble. What were you doing at 22? Getting in trouble. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? Yeah. But we need to think from an eternal perspective. And when Asaph finally stretches his vision, God stretches his vision beyond this earthly life and looks at eternal life, all of a sudden he doesn't envy the wicked anymore. He trembles for them. All right? He fears for their future. Verse 18. God, surely you have set the wicked in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. You know, we were talking about avalanche. So here's an eternal perspective for you. You might want to write this one down. This is a good one. Here's the eternal perspective. You have a choice. Limited pleasure for now plus infinite pain forever. That's one option. Limited pleasure now plus infinite pain forever or limited pain for now plus infinite pleasure forever. Limited pleasure for now. The world will choose today over eternity every time. The world will give you limited pleasure. I don't care how good your life is. In this life, your pleasure is limited. Amen? There's only so much of it you can get. And the people that should have most of it, you know, the healthy and the wealthy and all that stuff, their pleasure is limited. And if all you take pleasure in is what this world can give you, as you age, your pleasure will diminish. Yes? yes? Your body will betray you. Father time will come and get you. They'll overtake you, right? So your pleasure is limited. But if you sign up for the world's plan, you get infinite pain forever, which means you're separated from God forever. Forever, right? Infinite pain. Or you can take Asaph's plan that he finally came to. You take limited pain here for 60, 70 years, maybe 80. 
maybe 10, plus infinite pleasure forever. So Asaph now sees the end of the wicked. You know, um, nobody jumps out of a perfectly good airplane without a parachute. Why would you not do that? I mean, people jump out of an airplane for the thrill of the journey, right? It's the thrill of flying through the air. Yes? So if that's the case, wouldn't the journey be just as much fun even without a parachute? Because, so, you should, so you should pay attention to the destination before you start the journey? Ooh, now that's a good axiom for life. Pay attention to the destination before you start the journey and pay attention to your destination when you're on the journey. You know, the journey down out of an airplane is only fun if you can engineer a safe landing. See, yeah. Limited pleasure for now plus infinite pain forever. That's the world's plan. I'm going to get all I can here. I'm going to spend eternity separated from God. Or... As a Christian, I'm willing to endure limited pain now, but I get heaven forever. Does that make sense? Okay. See, I'm into pleasure. I don't like pain. I'm just telling you, I do not like pain. I love pleasure. The key is what the world promises you will yield pleasure will yield you pain. We get deceived. We don't understand the source of true pleasure. There's an old hymn tune, Jesu meine Freude, it's German. Jesus' priceless treasure. You want the priceless treasure? Jesus himself is the priceless treasure, and he lasts forever, which is wonderful. Asaph sees that everything the wicked have that he envies is going to be swept away when they die. Everything they value is gone. Their wealth, their pride, their ease, their comfort at death, it's all gone. As a matter of fact, everything this world values is built on the side of Mount Everest with an avalanche coming at it. What did Jesus say? You build your life in this life, you build it on the sand or you build it on a rock. If you build your house on the seashore, right, right on the seashore, and you get an extra wave, what happens? The wave will come and wash your house out to sea. Every time there's a hurricane, we see that happen. So he said, build your life on the rock of God himself, and it'll never be washed away. Don't get seduced into coveting the things of this life. Don't get seduced. It's just stuff, right? You know where your stuff is going? The landfill. <laughs> All your precious treasures are going to the landfill. And guess what? You're going to a landfill, too. We call it a cemetery, right? Our treasures in heaven, you can't, get, you can't be separated from that stuff. That's where treasures are. So God has a solution. We just heard a little solution for Asaph. Now we're going to talk about Job's solution. Job is suffering. He doesn't understand why. He demands answers from God. And Job never explains why. God never explains to Job why. God responds to Job's suffering not by explanation, but by, but by revealing himself to Job. Job gets interrogated by God for four chapters. And in Job 42, after 70 questions from God, Job has a moment of insight. Job 42, 1. If God asked you 70 questions, baby, you would have a moment of insight too. I hope it wouldn't take all 70. Right? 
right? Job 42, 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I now know that you can do all things. Duh. He knows. Some of us are not convinced because some of us look at our problems and we're not convinced God's big enough to handle our problem. Well, Job now gets that. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now, that's what God had asked him a few chapters before. Job, you're running your mouth, but you're not making any sense. Therefore, this is Job, I have spoken that which I did not understand. Have you ever done that? You ever asked for things, God gave them to you, and then you said, why did I ask for that? God, did I really want that? Well, that's what you said for six months, right? God, give me, give me, give me, give me. Finally, he gave it to you. Well, Job says, I opened my mouth. I did not understand. Things too wonderful me for which I did not know. Here's what's so important for you to understand about Job 1, 2, and 3. Nothing has changed in his circumstances. Nothing. Job 42, 1, 2, and 3, he's still on the ash heap. He's still scraping his skin. He's still got elephantitis. His children are still dead. His wife is still not in faith. His three friends are still harassing him. No circumstances has changed. What's changed is his perspective. What's changed is his view of God. Job now sees God as sovereign over everything, including his suffering. Before, now Job was going to tell God a thing or two, and now Job says in verse 4, God, I will ask you and you instruct me. Verse 5, I want you to take a pen out, underline, I have heard about you by the hearing of the year, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract in dust and ashes. See, Job, God doesn't explain why Job is suffering, and Job no longer cares why. Here's the truth, folks. Most of human suffering is going to remain a mystery. Yes? Most of your life is going to remain a mystery, and Job's okay with that, because Job has just met God himself. Here's the principle. The solution to suffering is not knowing why. It is knowing who. The solution to suffering is not knowing why, it is knowing who, it is knowing God. Job says, I have heard about you, secondhand knowledge, you know, but now I know you myself through personal experience. And fortunately or unfortunately, as God designs, most of our personal experience of God really comes about in moments of crisis, doesn't it? God allows a crisis into our life to turn on our hearing aid, to open our eyes to what reality is. So Job has a direct encounter with God. Habakkuk, he complains that God is not fair. In chapter 2, verse 20, we have a completely different perspective given by God to Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, God, you're not paying attention. I'm complaining. You're not listening, blah, blah, blah. Habakkuk is looking at life from his point of view, yes? God, you should be attending to moi, right? I'm talking to you, right? Look at me. And you can hear Job saying this, or Habakkuk saying this, like you talk to your kids. You look at me. Look at my eyes, right? 
Yeah, some of you do that with your spouse. You know, it doesn't work really well. <laughs> Try something else. Try something else. In Habakkuk 2.20, God gives Habakkuk a little perspective on who's really in charge. He said, but the Lord is where? In his holy temple, let all the earth callate before him. Yeah? It says, be silent. You know what that means? Hush. Hush. Literally. Let all the earth be silent before him. So what's the focus in here? The focus is not me. Focus is him. This is the core issue. Habakkuk, Job, Asaph, and us, we all demand that God spend his energy focusing on me. Right? I mean, isn't he the genie? Isn't that his job? Isn't he supposed to fix my troubles? If he did fix your troubles, what would you do? You would go out and do something greater stupid than what you did to get you in trouble last time, and you would need another miracle. Right? Don't kid yourself. I have a friend, uh, an acquaintance. He always runs a large credit card balance on his credit card, and he only makes minimum payments. And I said, why don't you pay the credit card off? He says, no, no, you don't understand. If I pay it off, she'll run it up next month. Seriously. That's a spending problem. So the key is you keep the credit card right to the limit, pay the minimum so you can only spend so much a month. That was how they controlled their budget. By the way, for those of you who are thinking, not a good plan. Not a good plan. You know, not a good plan. Yeah, yeah. 20% interest, as you said. So if you want some perspective, I want you to write down Psalm 4611. Psalm 4611, a very good point of perspective. Be still, and then you will know that I am God. And you know, the implication is you will not know me as God until you hush up. Stop talking. Our problem is generally not our suffering. It's our self-centered demand that God focus on us instead of us worshiping him. Okay. So Habakkuk, his circumstances haven't changed at all. There's still an invasion coming. What's changed is Habakkuk's perspective. Go to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. The last three or four verses of Habakkuk 3 are stunning. Habakkuk 3.16. He's had an encounter with God, and he says, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. That's a very nice way of saying I'm about ready to lose my cookies. I'm scared. I'm in the presence of God. His stomach, he's ready to upchuck. At the sound of your voice, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones. He says, I can't even stand up in your presence. And in my place, I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people who will invade us. You know, one of the ways you know that you, you've had an encounter with God, number one, if it's based on the reality of Scripture, all subjective experiences need to be based on the reality of Scripture, but if you come away from your encounter with God with humility and confession, it's a pretty good indicator you're being honest with God. The Apostle John fell down as dead when he encountered God in Revelation. Peter, James, and John fell down in terror at Jesus' transfiguration. Moses, in the presence of the burning bush, right, fell on his face. Joshua fell down in humility when he encountered the captain of the Lord's host with a sword. It says Daniel was exhausted and sick for days. See, most people in this world have never had an encounter 
with God. I didn't say Christians. I said most people. You know why? They're still arrogant. When you have an encounter with God, humility is one of the outcomes. One of the outcomes. By the way, nothing has changed in Habakkuk's circumstances. Nothing. He still knows there's going to be an invasion. He still knows that they're going to be carried into captivity. Right? But he's moved from a self-centered perspective to a God-centered perspective. He used to be filled with fear, and now he's filled with faith. He used to be worshiping or worried, now he's worshiping. Very same circumstances from a different very point of view. Let me give you an illustration. The pessimist says the glass is... The optimist says my glass is... Another perspective says looks like we got about twice as much glass as we need. Think about it. Where did you ever begin to say the measurement of everything is the size of the glass I'm holding? Maybe you've got as much water as you can handle. The reality is God alone knows how much water your glass can hold or what size glass you can hang on to. So in the glass of life, to carry this metaphor into the ground, God will pour into your glass what he wants to. And he will take out of your glass what he wants to. And some of us are saying, God, my glass is empty. I have nothing in it. Can you fill it with something? And he does, and three months later we go, my glass is so full I can't deal with it anymore. It's pouring over the top. <laughs> Maybe you need to ask God for a bigger glass. See, we want to tell God what he should do. You put into my glass what I want in, you take out what I want. Sometimes God knows we need suffering in our glass. Yes? He's trustworthy. He knows more than we know because he sees the future. I saw a fabulous illustration. I can't remember it, but it was the Baltimore Orioles. Earl Weaver's the coach. Reggie Jackson is on first base. And Earl Weaver had an ironclad rule. You never steal second without a sign for me. I'm the coach. Well, Reggie's young and smart and fast. And he says, old man, I can steal second. So he does. He steals second. After the game's over, Earl sat down and said, let me tell you why I didn't give you the sign to steal second. The second strongest power hitter on the team bats after you. So you steal second. What do they do with the second strongest power hitter? They walk him. The hitter behind him is weak. Now I got to substitute him, which means I don't have bench strength in the last three innings. That's us and God. All we see is, God, I want to do that. We don't understand the strategy. We don't understand the big picture. We don't understand that God's got plans 10, 15 years from now that are important on us being faithful today with what he gives us. See, we're looking and going, well, today, I just need to get through today. No, God's planning for 15 years from now. God has plans for your grandchildren 100 years from now that are dependent on how you handle your suffering today because they're watching. And we go, you mean it's not all about me? No, it's not all about you. It may be about your neighbor who watches you go to church every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday, right? 
I had a friend of mine that died about three weeks ago, and her neighbors came to faith because she took their kids to VBS for years, and they used to call her the crazy church lady. They're going to heaven because of the crazy church lady. Okay? Don't think what you don't do matters. It matters. Here's Habakkuk's conclusion. Habakkuk 3.17. His circumstances hasn't changed, but he's focused on God and not his circumstances. Here's what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. You know, in an agricultural economy, you know what that means? You are going to starve. You are going to die because there's no food. He says, even if we lose everything, by the way, they were going to. God said, you're carried into captivity. You're losing it all. By the way, did you know you're losing it all too? When you die, everything here stays here. No hearse pulling U-Hauls. And if you could take it, you wouldn't need it up there because gold is paving stone. It's just asphalt, right? Habakkuk says, even if I lose it all, the bottom line is my strength, my peace, my joy, my confidence do not depend on my circumstances, but on God alone. Verse 18. If we starve to death, if we get carried into captivity, if we lose it all, yet I will exalt in who? In the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. The reality is, you know what we exult in? We exult in lots of things besides God. We exult in our money, our health, our nation, our kids, our grandkids, our circumstances, our sports teams winning the championship. I exult in my new barbecue. We exult in lots of stuff, right? <laughs> Habakkuk's joy is based in God and nothing else. I'm not saying you shouldn't exult in that stuff. But at the end of the day, you don't build your life on the new barbecue. You build your life on Jesus Christ. And he says at the very end, yeah, by the way, Habakkuk's conversation here sounds a lot like Romans 8, doesn't it? At the very end, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things past, things come, nor anything other created things should be able to separate us. Paul understands that at death, everything goes away except the only thing you cannot lose in life and death is Jesus Christ. Everything else is going to go away. Everything. He says, Habakkuk, God says, Habakkuk says to God, you have made my feet like hinds feet on high places. You know what that is? That's a picture of a mountain goat or a deer that walks securely on very, very narrow mountain paths. Have you ever seen nature videos, Nat Geo Wild and stuff, and you see these mountain sheep at 9,000 feet and they're walking on sheer rock. And I mean, it's straight down. It's cliff. And you look and you say, there's no path. There is no path for that animal to walk. They not only walk, they run. They jump and you're going, you're jumping into thin air, bud. I mean, you know, it's a long way down. The law of gravity has not been abrogated for you just because you happen to be a doll sheep, right? That's how God says, I will make a way for you where there seems to be no way and I will give you the ability to navigate any path I call you to walk. That's the principle. God will give you everything you need to navigate the path he has called you to walk. Some of 
us in this room are walking paths that we would rather not be on. I know that. We would rather be on the eight-lane freeway and not the Valley of the Shadow. We would rather be on the um, airline walkway that just moves all by itself. We don't have to do anything. And yet God has us on paths that sometimes we say, God, there is no path. There is no way that I can do this. You're right. With your eyes and your skill, there is no way. But God told Habakkuk, God, Habakkuk told God after he had an encounter with God, God, you'll give me the feet to walk the path you want me to walk. You're going to have to trust him for the shoes. Amen? All right. One last thing, quickly. Isaiah is having an experience with God. He is really, really, really upset. King Uzziah has died after 52 years. The entire kingdom is an upheaval. The earthly king is dead. National circumstances are a mess. But if you look at Isaiah 6, he says he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. Seraphim were above him. They were worshiping. One called to another, verse 3, Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So the earthly king is dead. The heavenly king is seated on the throne. Is God in charge of his universe? Yeah. You know, anytime you see God portrayed in scripture, he's never running around. He's seated on the throne, perfectly in control. Isaiah is worrying until he sees God and then he starts to worship. Here's the principle. The solution for worry is worship. The solution for worry is worship. Worry is self-centered. How many of you wake up at 2 in the morning and go, I don't know what I am going to do about my problems. Is that a little self-centered? Folks, if you're depending on yourself to solve your problems, you're already in trouble. I was going to say something else, but I won't. Right? Because if you assume you're in control, God is not in control. You should be worried, except worry doesn't do anything besides get worse. It doesn't help. When you worship, you are focusing on God and understanding He's in control, and there is no problem or pain or suffering in our life that He can't handle. So here's a summary. God's perspective comes from God's presence. Actually, it comes in God's presence. You don't need less problems. You need more presence, which means you need to get alone with God. Psalm 73 teaches us that the eternal perspective is limited pleasure for now, plus infinite pain forever, or, much better plan, take limited pain for now, plus infinite pleasure forever. Job teaches us that the solution to suffering is not knowing why, it is knowing who. Habakkuk teaches us that God will give you everything you need to navigate the path he has called you to walk. And Isaiah 6 teaches us that the solution for worry is worship. Worry is self-centered and worship is God-centered. Um, all right, now that you know, go 